0: I love to talk about travel. I love to talk about where I've been. I love to talk about where I'm going, where I want to go. If you and I are in a conversation, at some point, I'm going to ask you something like, where is the coolest place you've ever been? Or, if you'd like to go somewhere, anywhere, where would you go? I love to see how people's faces light up when they talk about some place they've been or some place they want to go. Where we travel ends up saying a lot about us. Now, around here, a lot of people tell you that the place they most love to go is the Jersey Shore. I'm not originally from around here. I grew up down south. I would go to the beach. I would go to Daytona Beach. I would go to Myrtle Beach. Here you don't go to the beach. You go down ashore. As in, why weren't you at church on Sunday? Because I was down ashore. Now, I'm not going to compare the Jersey Shore with Florida where I went, but I, but I do get it. I think I get it after living here for over 30 years. I do get the Jersey Shore. You see, for, for shore folks, every year it's like a pilgrimage to the Jersey Shore. You go the same week every year. You go to the same place every year. You take the same route to get there every year. You go with the same people every year. You pack the same food every year. You do the same things at the shore every year. You do the same boardwalk. You ride the same rides. You eat the same pizza place. You get the same fudge every year. Uncle Charlie falls asleep on the beach gets a bad sunburn, and spends the rest of the week complaining every year. Some folks have been doing the same thing at the Jersey Shore every year for years. It's not so much a vacation as it is a pilgrimage. Psalm 84 is called a pilgrimage song. It's about a journey to the same place to do the same thing every year. The writer of the psalm is recounting with joy his favorite place in the world to go. To the temple in Jerusalem. Now the Jews in the psalmist's time sought to get to the temple In Jerusalem as often as possible in their lives. This didn't make them better Jews, but they did it because they knew that the temple was where God would meet with them. It's where their sins were forgiven. It's where prayers were heard. It's where the covenant relationship they had with the Lord of hosts felt most dear and close. Psalm 84 was written to express the heart of an Old Testament worshiper as he or she or they anticipate a spiritual journey to seek the Lord where He may be found. We who live on this side of the resurrection, who are partakers of the new covenant, who have the presence of God within us through the indwelling Holy Spirit, who have had their sins permanently atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ, may not be able to identify with the spiritual pilgrimage of the Old Testament saint in Psalm 84. So I'm going to give us some brief clues to kind of let us drop in to this experience so we can involve ourselves in the journey along with the writer of this psalm. Number one, in Psalm 84, it's about longing and fulfillment. Commentator Derek Kidner says, longing is written all over this psalm. Now this isn't like Psalm 42, if you're familiar with that, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. That psalm is written by someone who longs to be in Jerusalem, but never thinks they'll get there. They're cut off from Jerusalem, so it's a longing of despair. The pilgrim of Psalm 84 is talking about a journey of anticipation. Not despair. It's the difference maybe in some way between longing for Hawaii when you see pictures of Hawaii and longing for Hawaii when you're holding two tickets on the plane to get there. As the people of God, this is where we live. We long for the presence of God. Now we have tasted of the presence of God, we experience the presence of God, but we know that ultimately there is a fulfillment out there where there will be a journey to the new Jerusalem where where we will live before God in His dwelling place. The Bible says God will dwell with us. And we long for that day that's eternal, that We'll never have longing anymore because it will all be fulfilled. So we can identify with the psalmist in longing and fulfillment. We can identify the psalmist because Psalm 84 is both practical experience and spiritual journey. It's clear that the psalmist has made this trip more than once. they're familiar with the journey. Intimately familiar with the challenges of the road and the delights of the arrival. He talks about valleys, and he talks about dryness, and he talks about entering the courts, strength to strength, which probably means walking through the courts of God to get to the altar. So he knows this journey. But he also uses this pilgrimage language as a metaphor for an internal journey of the soul. Verse 2, you see, my heart and my flesh, sing for joy to the living God. That's how we're called to live the Christian life as well. Now maybe you're here today and you're just sort of a practical person. You're a Christian doer. You want to know what God wants you to do so you can do it. You don't want to wait around to find out. You're uncomfortable with feelings of not being able to fix problems and find answers. Now God wants you to know that His job isn't just to help you manage your life. He's there working on your heart as well. Other people love the spiritual part. They spiritualize everything. To them, practical is the same thing as saying worldly or fleshly. They love waiting on God, even if God is tired of waiting on them. Psalm 84 teaches us to be practical and spiritual at the same time. Practical things always have spiritual implications. And everything that is spiritual needs to in some way be worked out in the practical. This psalm keeps both the spiritual and the practical together before us. And third, Psalm 84 is a beautiful depiction of God in both His power and His care. Verse 11, you see, God is our sun and our shield. A sun expressing the power and glory of God. The shield expressing the Protection and care of God. God is both lion and lamb, as we sang earlier. Four times, God is referred to in this psalm as the Lord of hosts, a title that could literally be translated Yahweh of the armies. This is the God of all power who is to be feared. But He's also at the same time the God who opens His courts to defenseless birds, who invites people to come to Him, who blesses abundantly. Do you see your God in His power and sovereignty and in His particular care and attention to you? Psalm 84 gives us a gloriously accurate view of God, no matter where we are, what we face. Now, the flow of the psalm corresponds to the experience of the journey. Verses 1 to 4, we might call the preparation for the journey. Verses 5 to 7 would be maybe the process of the journey. Verses 8 to 10 are the point of the journey. And verses 11 and 12 are the payoff. Of the journey today, we're simply are going to walk with the writer of this psalm on the journey, and as we do it, I'm going to make particular applications to Risen Hope Church, where we are in this moment in time. So let's start verses one to four: the preparation for the journey. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts? My soul longs, yes, faints. For the courts of the Lord my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now to get this psalm, you need to put yourself in the mindset of an Israelite of old. Living out in some small village in the distant countryside. There's no church. No Bible studies. There's no worship services. No sermon podcasts. There's no K-love. The things that, you, that build your faith all happen somewhere else. In Jerusalem. More specifically, at the temple of Jerusalem. You can be a good Jew in your village, but you must meet with God in Jerusalem. And so you plan and save and prepare for a pilgrimage to the temple. It's at the temple that you can sacrifice and get access to God. It's at the temple where you can receive the peace of God. It's at the temple where you can experience God Himself. So the psalmist begins with his longing. This is serious longing. The King James Version says, My heart and my flesh cry out. One commentator translates it, My whole being craved, yes, exhausted itself for Yahweh's courtyards. What is he craving? A visit to the temple? A great building? No, he loves the temple. But he loves it because it's the dwelling place of the living God. The temple is where God promises to meet with people, with poor downcast sinners to extend his mercy and awaken joy in them. That's what the pilgrim longs for. Not a good seat at a festivity. Not an experience to add to his Instagram account. Not to fulfill a religious responsibility. We don't know much about this psalmist. Was he rich? Was he poor? Was he a leader, just a poet? Well, we don't know much about him, but what we do know is that the one thing he wanted most was to meet with God. Now, we are in Christ. And that makes all the difference. See, God ended the temple worship system forever in Christ. He broke... Out to the world from the temple in Christ. John 1, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is the same word in verse 1 here. How lovely is your dwelling place. Those who are Bible students will know that means tabernacle. How lovely is your tabernacle. How lovely is the tent where you dwell? John says, Jesus came and tabernacled among us. We are the temple of God because God dwells within us. When we gather together, we set up the tent of God at Beulah Tabernacle, at Christ Community, here in this building, in our small groups, in our women's night of worship, at our softball fellowship this Saturday, in everything we do together, we are the dwelling place of God. And my prayer when I consider this is this, that this church, Risen Hope Church, would never be known as a building. Someday, we're going to need a building. But may we never be the building. May we never have people in this community say, oh yes, Risen Hope Church, that's that building. May they say, Risen Hope Church, that's that people. It's those folks. Let it never be that we build something or renovate something or rent something to do programs. To do church. Brothers and sisters, we are the church. Where we go, the church goes. We're not the only church in this area, but we are the church. Let us never be a people of a building. Let us be the church. Verse 3, Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself. Where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Verses 3 and 4 are a beautiful picture of this dwelling place of God. Small birds make their nest near the altar. What does that mean? Call the exterminator? Fire the custodian? Turn it into a bird sanctuary? Now, the metaphor here is one of safety and protection. Remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Now, it's good to keep in mind, when we talk about this picture of altars and and birds nesting in altars and people, this idea of protection, we have to remember the altars of the other religions during the psalmist's time. These were altars where children were sacrificed to appease angry local gods. These are altars where temple sex slaves were forced to perform abominable acts to satisfy the lusts of God. Brothers and sisters, the religion of man is inevitably cruel. And the closer you get to the center of it, the crueler it gets. Yet the place where the Lord of hosts well, the God of the armies dwells. Even the holy altar that no one can approach without atonement for sin is a nesting place for the small and weak. See, the Jews didn't view the altar as a place of judgment. The altar is a place of mercy. It was there where God made a way for them to come into His presence. And no matter how you've sinned, how bad you've been, the altar of God is the place of your atonement. The place where you are welcomed into His presence. This is the point the writer of Hebrews is making. Therefore, brothers, He writes in Hebrews 10, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh, His death on the cross, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart, full of assurance, not fearful, full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Oh, do we need that? Do we need hearts sprinkled clean? Do we need our bodies pure? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Because he who promised is faithful. The God who said, I have made atonement, will apply it to you if you ask for it. And my prayer for risen hope is that this would never be a place where people have to clean up their act in order to come in. That This would never be a place where you feel like you've got to dress up either externally or internally. This would never be a place where someone says, I don't feel comfortable around those people because they're too holy. Not that we shouldn't be holy. We'll get to that. But what they would would become aware of in us is not how good we are, but how good God has been. His mercy for us. Apart from the grace of God, we have nothing. With the mercy of God, we have acceptance. May people come into our midst, come into our small groups, drop into this building after walking past it week after week after week, and discover people who are more aware of the mercy of God than anything else in their lives. May we be that people in this community. Let's move on to the process, the journey itself, verses five through seven. Verse five: Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength; each one appears before God in Zion. Verses five through seven describe the processional to the temple, people in journey. As we mentioned before, this is to be understood both as an inner spiritual journey and as a physical journey. Verse 5, the highway of Zion, notice it starts in the heart. It's not a yellow brick road. In whose heart are the highways to Zion. Long before the psalmist embarks on the physical journey to the temple, His heart has mapped out the way. This is not a cold heart expecting church to change it. This is not a heart that is unprepared. This is a heart that is prepared, a heart set on pilgrimage, as the New International Version translates it. So the question is, where is your heart today? Do you have a heart that is indifferent to God during the week? hoping that Sunday makes a difference? That somehow church activities will change your heart? They don't. Or, are you mapping that highway to Zion in your heart every day? Are you cultivating the longing for God? Now we don't know where this valley of Bacah he references here in verse 6, but it's something that the psalmist must pass through. He can't go around it. It's a desolate place, a place you don't want to stay in any longer than you must if you're on the journey. Most commentaries see it more as a description. In the Hebrew, it can be translated the valley of weeping or the valley of tears. The spiritual journey will take you through desolate places. But there's promise. The promise of rain. This is a promise of God's blessing and abundance meeting you in the dry places. No, you you take this journey, you will find dry places. You will experience dry times. You will feel like you're wandering in the desert at times. But the Lord provides rain in due season. A hard journey doesn't necessarily mean a lifeless journey because God will give you what you need when you need it. But this is interesting. The val- this is a physical journey as well. The valley is a real place that they must cross to get to the temple. There's an interesting angle to this. Look at verse 6. The psalmist says, As they go through the valley of Baca." They make it a place of springs. In other words, not only does something good happen in them as as they journey, but something happens good because of them as they journey. One commentator says it like this, The context indicates that the valley is arid, but is transformed by the presence of the joyful pilgrims. And it's really caught me. It's really caught me for this church. Do you realize that you and I were not saved to be good churchgoers? That's not why we were saved. Jesus came to redeem sinners and turn them into true worshipers and then to send them out into a dry and broken world as witnesses and missionaries. That's why we're saved. That's what we're here for. We gather here not to fulfill why we were saved, but to be equipped to go do what we were supposed to do because we're saved. To remember the glories and greatness of God and take that into the world. To a lost and dying generation. Brothers and sisters, the world is a valley of tears. People hold up well under it at times. They distract themselves at times. They try to make things better at times. This past year, I have been to just happened to have been to three large con- concerts. Uh, and at each concert, the, the, the band leader in the concert, first he said the identical thing, this great warm feeling that we have all together, this sense of love that we have, let's take it out and change things. It's what Bruce Springsteen said, it's what Bono said, it's what Chris Martin said. Heard them all this year. None of those cases did any of that joy and love make it outside past the parking lot traffic jam. But you and I, we have the difference maker. It isn't our morality. It isn't our politics. It isn't our ethnic background. It isn't our religion. It's Jesus. That's the thing the world truly needs. And that's the only real thing we have to offer. My prayer is simply this. That this church would make a difference right here in this area. That people would know you not because, man, these people are religious, but because they've heard of Jesus through you. They've encountered Jesus through you. They've encountered Jesus in your schools. They've encountered Jesus at the Y. They've encountered Jesus at the Acne. they encountered Jesus at the pizza place because you were there. Let's never be a church that avoids the people around us to get to the people we want to be with. Let's be the church that doesn't try to find a way around the valley of tears. Let's go through the valley and let's be water to the thirsty. Verses 8-10, through the point of the journey. Our Lord, our Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold, our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Verses eight through ten depict the point of the journey. This is what it's about. It's about the worship of God. As much as there are benefits that he's looking forward to, to being with God, the main reason he leaves everything and makes a journey is to worship God. In other words, it's not about him, it's about God. It's always about God. We don't follow Jesus for the benefits. We follow Jesus because he's God. There's simply no place he'd rather be. You can see that in his declaration in verse 10. He's not saying, now, he's not saying, I'd rather be a janitor in the church than president of the United States, although many people would prefer that these days. This is about location. I'll sacrifice all this world gives to me to be close to God. As Charles Spurgeon commented, every glimpse of the love of God is better than ages spent in the pleasures of sin. Because worship is about God and not about us, What what you are in the world doesn't determine what you are in the house of God. If you are nobody in the world, you can have a place of dignity and meaning and purpose in the house of God. If you're great and mighty in the world, that doesn't bring you any status in the house of God. This is important because in verse 9, the psalmist asks God to look on the face of His anointed. This is a petition to God on behalf of the leader, the king, the priest. Now while God doesn't recognize man's prominence in the world, He does use the gift of leadership In His house. In the Old Testament, where you see good leadership, you see the blessing on the people of God. And where you see bad leadership or no leadership, it is a curse. Verse 10 exposes the heart of verse 9 because in God's house, leadership is not about me or my calling or my gifting. Or recognize what I can do for you. Or acknowledge what I've done in the past. It, like everything else, is about God. So my prayer is this, that we would be a people where it is about God is what we are about. It's about God. And that would extend from the new believer straight to the lead pastor. And I would ask you to pray this. I am exiting the stage in the next few weeks. The men who are serving you are wonderful men. The pastors who are here. Leo, who has just completed his ordination exams and is now ready to be ordained as an elder in this church, are godly men And they're not just the only ones. This church is blessed with godly men. Men who are leading small groups, leading ministries, men who are in preparation for eldership. This church has been inordinately blessed with leaders. The last thing they want is to be known for leadership. But yes, they must lead. So I would ask you to pray for them. Pray for my brothers. Pray for the men who are called and who will emerge as the leaders in future generations. Pray for for men who are wrestling with their call. Pray for men who are are serving. Pray for your pastors. Pray that God would bless them. Pray that God would keep them humble. Pray that this, this, this passage here would ring deep in their hearts. They, they want to serve you. It's not about them. It's not about ministry. It's not about position. As Paul said, they want to spend and be spent for the sake of the church. Lift them up as they do that. And finally, verse 12, 11 and 12, the payoff of the journey... For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O oh Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in You. The psalm ends with a confidence that God will bless those who seek after Him. This confidence is not unconditional. God knows our hearts. His blessing falls on those who walk uprightly on those who walk literally with an undivided heart. That's the word. It's an undivided heart. Now, an undivided heart doesn't earn God's favor. God's favor comes. God gives out of His love and mercy. He sets His kindness and favor on us because of Jesus not because of us. It's Jesus who came full of grace and truth as John proclaims in his Gospel. He's given us honor as the psalmist says. God has chosen to identify with people like us. He's chosen to have His glory attached to our inglorious daily lives. And He's chosen to make us partakers of His honor. That's grace. That's mercy. That's unfathomable grace that that God would yoke His glory to us. But if we have that awareness, it will provoke in us a desire to live for His glory. To walk with an undivided heart. If you have a divided heart, it's because you don't realize what you've been given. And you're squandering it. Now, there's blessing that comes with this. We have the right to represent Jesus in this world. We have the called to represent Jesus in the world. And therefore, God will give us the ability to represent Jesus accurately in this world. As a people, we'll all fail individually, but as a people of God, we can represent Jesus Christ accurately in this world. We need the grace of God and the glory of God to do that. Now my prayer is that we'll see the fruit of that. And brothers and sisters, I have confidence because we already are. We're seeing the fruit of that. The last two years have been Beyond what we ever thought when we started out this little journey. We don't know where it's going to go ultimately. We never thought we'd be here. We never thought we'd be what we are. This Thursday, September 1st, 237 adults and children are going to become the inaugural church membership of Vision Hope Church. Many of you are in that group. Many of you came from Covenant Fellowship to be part of this. Many of you have joined and together we make up that group. That generations later, your names are going to be known because you were here when it started. In just a few minutes, seven people are going to be baptized. That's the blessing of God. None of those people are being baptized because we're great leaders. None of those people are being baptized because we figured out the formula. They're being baptized because God has been kind to this church and allowed it to be a witness through ordinary people like you and me. And for those seven people, they're going to begin a journey some of them already know Christ, but they're, the, baptism is a declaration that I'm ready to start walking. I'm, I'm committed to the walk. If you're being baptized today, it's not a, you may have a wonderful experience. Praise God for that. People may pray for you. Praise God for that. But the reality is, being baptized is, is declaring to the world, I'm no longer walking that way. I'm walking to Jerusalem. And I'm not stopping until I get there. And nobody's going to stop me. And we need one another because the walk is hard. We need one another because, because the way is long. We need one another because we have to help each other get there. And so as today as we celebrate these baptisms, in a few days as we acknowledge and celebrate in two weeks, we celebrate the establishment of this church as a local church. Let's remember... The journey doesn't end, the adventure continues. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God Almighty! Amen.